This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, this is Addie Kim, host of the New Books Network. I am a PhD candidate in comparative literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Here with me is Andy Choi, the author of the 2021 novel Slow Hot, published by Schism Press. Andy Choi is a high school student in the creative writing program at the Orange County School of the Arts, whose debut novel, Slow Hot, was released last July. As a writer of the Korean diaspora, he is an advocate for peace, sovereignty, and the reunification of Korea, and is invested in the global politics of revolutionary social transformation. Andy, uh, thanks for being with me today. so how are you doing um i'm really excited to be invited to this um podcast and i i'm thankful for yeah thankful that you invited me (laughs) no problem i really enjoyed your novel i think it's really brilliant and all the more impressive um for being written while you're so young um but I actually know of you like more firsthand through your Instagram account, Korea Archive, um, which has taken off as a critical resource for English speakers interested in Korean and Korean American leftist political movements, revolutionary struggle and cultures of anti-imperialism, democratization and peace activism. Um, could you tell us more, not just about this account, but um, how it fits into your broader political trajectory and your political practice and uh, how your political practice um, is in relation to your cultural work? Yeah, so I'll start off with my political trajectory because I think it mirrors a lot of not only what tr- political trajectory a lot of Korean Americans go through, but also a lot of people my age do. Um, so I grew up during the 2008 recession, um, Occupy Wall Street, the uprisings against police killings in Ferguson and Baltimore, and the election of Trump. So all these things um, gave me an embryonic consciousness that 
made me think that made me um, know that there needed to be significant social change in America, but I don't remember significantly interrogating the dominant narrative about Korea until right after the historic 2018 Panmunjom summit when I was in ninth grade. And that was at a time when I was really being introduced to a lot of the anti-globalization politics, uh, the Zapatista rebellion, things that really characterize the uh, global left and especially the American left in the 2000s. And I had to do a project in one of my classes about a certain global issue, and I chose the denuclearization of the DPRK or North Korea. And it was sort of me trying to play devil's advocate just because no one in the class was going to go out. No one in the class was going to be like, oh, like the DPRK should have nuclear weapons and we're all going to say like the DPRK is evil. Um, So I actually began researching the DPRK and I, after actually looking into the way into the country and how it operates and actually learning things about it um, because I had pretty much no knowledge about it beforehand except for things that the American media or like the teachers tell you which is that the TPRK is evil that I finally began to learn more about Korea at that time. Wow. So um, your own kind of journey with learning more about Korea has happened fairly recently then, like within the last few years. Yeah. Um, I was actually deeply involved in the environmental movement when I was like in ninth grade, like I organized the climate strike. And I think that was the moment when seeing how little the global wave of climate strikes accomplished in terms of actually pushing the people in power made me question about how really democratic the American political system is in relationship to the governed. And I think that really my politicization in terms of issues regarding Korea started with reading a book called Korea's Place in the Sun of Modern History by Bruce Cummings. And really how the politicization worked was I also, through using social media, came to um, know and read more about uh, works that challenged dominant institutional historiographies in favor of counter narratives that resisted them, that really shed light on what, how things really are. And I think that, I think without social media, I wouldn't have been able to access that, which I think is a pretty interesting development and which a lot of other people my age have also encountered yeah absolutely like social media um definitely is one of those catalysts for how a lot of people learn about geopolitical affairs um in a way that kind of questions a lot of the dominant media narratives um and in this case specifically with uh, common framings of North Korea as you know a rogue state or, or terrorist threat while completely uh erasing, you know, histories of U.S. imperialism, of the Cold War, and U.S. war crimes, you know, against North Koreans. Um, And also the way the U.S. is just kind of, you know, fomenting war in the Asia-Pacific region, um, and how the Korean Peninsula is really a kind of tinderbox, right, for this kind of 
new Cold War that the U.S. is waging. It's really fascinating to hear about your uh, involvement with the environmental movement because the environment is definitely a key player in your novel. You are drawing kind of like the Cold War and Cold War militarization in with broader kind of climate change patterns. So you're kind of commenting on climate change, not as this kind of just thing that's happening, divorced from history, but you're really like drawing kind of the Cold War into the broader history of climate change, right? Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to do with the novel. And I think it also, uh, at the time that I was writing the novel, I was actually working on a certificate of ecological restoration at my local community college. And so a lot of what I was learning in my classes, which were pretty standard environmental science courses, like none of them were, um, most of them were just like very bare to the bones, like, um, like this is how ecological processes work and stuff like that. Um, I think these classes really lent themselves useful because it really put into perspective the ecological crisis, wherein along with the technological mutations that I experienced through the COVID-19 lockdown, um, but were already prevalent in my life beforehand. And uh, one thing that I do in my novel is, uh, is each of the vignettes, vignettes that I write are titled, are titled after an invasive species from the Asian continent to the North American landmass. And I think that was really inspired by how I saw this spread of COVID-19 and its relationship to anti-Asian racism. And it wanted me to, it made me want to explore how deeply these, like the, the not only like biological ecology, ecologies, but like social and mental ecologies um, that relate to them because what we have right now is a virus that like in other devastating pandemics is intimately linked to environmental destruction like deforestation um, where huge swathes of the population are were at least in 2020 we're witnessing something similar to a collective psychosis um, particularly young people my age and also a situation where us as people who are racialized as asian are seen as particularly dangerous vectors of not only COVID, but also what you were saying earlier about the new Cold War. And so I think I think it's a convergence of the of like environmental concerns and also the COVID-19 pandemic and how it relates to our experiences as people race, racialized as Asian in the United States right now. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's really really interesting. Um, how you name each of the different narrative strains after a different invasive species, but all of them are, you know, understood to be native to Northeast Asia, right? But um, yes, right. I mean, like it really does like have this effect. Um, kind of, it's like ironic, but like melancholic. It's like associating your uh, diasporic narrators with like quote unquote invasive bodies but you know in an age where like so many different species perhaps the majority of the earth's identified species are like shifting ranges and because of climate change so invasive species like the whole term becomes you know con contested and complex if 
climate migrations are you know, instead viewed as natural responses to already kind of planetary processes. Definitely. But yeah, I mean, definitely with um, the COVID pandemic and with the anti-Asian um, violence that we see happening, that's another reason why your novel is just super, super rich. Um, are there other themes or ideas you wanted to explore with your writing of this novel? Um, and particularly given um, what you were saying with uh, technological mutations, right? Um, and given your own kind of online presence, your online persona, um, how would you relate your fiction writing with the digital? Yeah, um, I think I, I think at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, I developed a very strange way of experiencing the world because I was spending most of my day inside with little to no interaction with people outside of my family. And my laptop sort of became my world. And especially as school began again and everything was moved online. And so I was spending a lot of time actually on Google Street View, which prior to like a few weeks ago, before I was talking to other people about it, I didn't know that a lot of other people did. But I spent a lot of time just like going around like random places on Google Street View. Like I just spent like hours just like in like Philadelphia or Quebec or Southeast, like Southeastern Brazil, just like going to random corners of the world and sort of seeing how, um, and sort of just like seeing how things are. And I was also watching a lot of films and I think in a way, a lot of my writing tries to encapsulate the experience of these like non-haptic representational digitized spaces because I think I admittedly was lacking a firm demarcation between the real and the virtual at the time I was writing the book and so I wanted to create something material to differentiate between the two and I think that really motivated my writing. So specifically kind of you writing in an analog format even with a novel because there are like even digital formats with which you could have, you know, told your story. <laughs> but um, but at the same time, when we're reading it, there's just so much reference to digitality um, in a way that actually kind of contributes to the overall very experimental nature of your novel. Yeah, I think what we've seen in the past few years is really the loss of the analog in the form of community and community and communication right like our social media has taken all this information and images and all and made them have like a life of their own and i think we need to consider the implications of how these of how these changes are really impacting our society and and i think i wanted to express that too in my novel in my writing yeah, so actually that does kind of tie into another question I had because what you're talking about with the loss of more traditional, maybe older forms of subjectivity, analog subjectivity, ties into the sense while reading your novel that we're not sure like who the narrators are. If they're the same narrator at different points in time, or if they are different narrators. 
could you clarify more more for the reader um, who these narrators are? Um, I think it goes back to how right now, at least in my experience, and I know in a lot of others' experiences, we're simultaneously exposed to the voices and the opinions and the words of of countless people like huge numbers of people whether it be like comments on social media or just like random people being interviewed on the news like we're exposed to so many faces and so many different like lines of thought and text and i think that that overwhelming character of being of having so many strains of narration in terms of just our daily lives is what i was trying to illustrate in my novel and i think it's really embedded so deep that it invades our psyche. Like when I dream, I, I think I've moved. I used to dream when I was really little of myself. Like I was myself in my dream, but now I've actually found that whenever I dream, I'm actually dreaming through other people, through other people that I see online, through other, like I've become disembodied from my own self and instead implanted and other people. And I think in a way I wanted to express that through the many different narrators in my book, because I felt like it was a way of exploring how maybe one person's psyche could be sort of transported through the vessels of other, other bodies and other ways of seeing and thinking, because that's something that's very apparent in terms of my experience of the world. You know, th- there's that like very powerful sequence of passages where one of your narrators becomes a cyber shaman. And that really made me think of what you were saying. Um, but like given the kind of like digital oversaturation that's conditioning what's happening to these narrators, while you're getting like so many different kind of feedbacks, there's some really, really powerful things that can happen at the same time with um, shamanic visions did you have more that you wanted to say about that yeah um i remember i was really interested in um in shamanism for a while actually well going back i was raised christian um but not really very strongly as a christian i was sort of gone like many other korean americans i went to church as a sort of social event as a way to meet other korean people and after moving from Pennsylvania to California, we sort of left that church environment. And I think there was a very real lack of spirituality for me, I think, that I, I was trying to look for new look for new opportunities to sort of express the lack of religion in my life, which had been very overbearing when I was growing up, but I suddenly found I needed something to be to sort of fill that niche for me, I guess. And it's not the same for me in the same right now. And I realized that a lot of the way I was interested in it was just sort of trying to reconnect to like indigenous, to like our culture rather than just like actually wanting to be 100% invested in that form of spirituality. But I was listening to something about climate change a few days ago and it was talking about how in times of crisis, there needs to be, a, there's in civilizations, there's always been like a shamanic figure, right? That's been, that's led people to a sort of solution, no matter how 
um, unsatisfactory that is. But I think a lot of the resurgence of spirituality in our contemporary society or sort of adjacent practices like astrology, for example, have really been birthed out of the anxieties of our contemporary society. Like, I feel like all of us are confronted by a feeling of impending apocalyptic doom and none of them match the futuristic visions of 20th century cyberpunk that we kind of secretly wish they were. They're sort of much less romantic 21st century conditions of just a kind of slow, but also fast in a weird way, ecological crisis where we actually, where it's really hard for us to visualize it in one coherent image like climate, like climate change, but it's also ever present and it's progressing very quickly. And I think when we're confronted by so many questions of artificial intelligence, geoengineering and other technologies and questions about what it means to be human have really become ever present in terms of just our culture. And I think the way this like a shamanic spirituality fits into that debate, I'm not debate, that discourse is very interesting. And I think it will be very interesting to see how it does forward when it term, in terms of how we can harness this sort of need for a grounding figure or um, ideology or spirituality to move us to act actually and to sort of lift us from this sort of inertia that I think all of us are tied into if that makes sense right yeah the kind of political impasse we feel like a lot of us are in <laughs> um amidst like truly truly um mind-numbing crises that are happening now but also in our near future but yeah i mean that was also the shamanism was just so powerful to read about um because i you know like a lot of korean americans was also raised christian it's like kind of like interesting to square um, christianity with you know korea's own history and the kind of attendant demonization of indigenous spiritual practices in korea i mean i was taught uh to see korean shamans as like not in a positive way <laughs> but at the same time i think i am seeing more people kind of turn toward um, shamanism as a kind of, as having a lot of significance, not only spiritually, but also politically. And I could see that in your novel as well. So your novel is super speculative. Um, are there any other points you want to make about the structure of the novel or its genre or any major inspirations you've had, literary or otherwise? Yeah. Um, so I wrote, started writing Slow Hot without a clear framework or coherent storyline in mind. My writing process normally usually involves little to no pre-planning. And I wrote Slow Hot beginning to end without break. So I sort of had a disciplined schedule where I was like, I'm going to write one to 10 pages a day. And so I wrote it between December 2020 and February 2021, which is, I think, a pretty short period. And I submitted it to the press on my birthday, on my 17th birthday. And I think the way I wrote the book factors a lot 
into how it's structured because a lot of what I do is I just surf the internet with a notebook by my side and just write down random words or uh, or like clips or like little pieces of sentences. And I just find a way to incorporate them into my book to sort of find new ideas and pick them from the web, I guess. And I also took long walks at the time. Um, I took, I walked about like five miles a day on the same route every single day. And I just take notes on what I was seeing as well through the urban sprawl of Southern California that I was living in. And I think seeing the seeing just like noticing the small things that were changing every day was I was something that was very interesting to me and also also factored really heavily into the way I wrote this book. Um, as for its genre, um, Slow Hot has been categorized as science fiction by a lot of people and I generally agree with that judgment. But I want to stress that what I was going for was not to describe an imagined future like traditional science fiction, but to offer a time capsule time capsule of our unique moment of converging crises at the time and to record a very personal interpretation of the events that were going on around me to the point that I think Slow Hot is also semi-autobiographical. Yeah, so I think in terms of genre, that is, it's sort of science fiction, but sort of historical fiction at the same time, because actually reading back on it, it like reminds me of a lot of things that were going on back then, like where my head was, but also just that unique moment. And I think, and I think it's will be very interesting to read maybe in 10 years. Uh, yeah. Well, as for inspirations, I'm, I'm really inspired by Karen Tay Yamashita, who is a Japanese American author, uh, works a lot in magical realism and also is very, very good at place-based writing, like her book, Tropic of Orange about Los Angeles and Through the Arc of the Rainforest, which is about Brazil, have really impacted me. And I think the symphonic bringing together of all these diverse characters is something that I also emulated a bit in my book. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm so glad to hear that you um, draw inspiration from Karen Tay Yamashita. She's also a writer that I'm talking about in my dissertation. So <laughs> clearly, clearly we're like on similar wavelengths. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I also really enjoy the the kind of, as you described it, symphonic way. She brings different narrators into convergence in a very speculative manner. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your your personal background as a diasporic subject? Maybe a little into your family history or migration history. Um, and how would you say that your writing and online activity are shaped by uh, your diasporic perspective? Yeah, um, so I, my parents are both first-generation immigrants to the United States. I was born in Philadelphia, and I lived in the area for quite a long time, enough to be socialized into that, um, socialized into um, my adolescence around the city. And I grew up like a lot of other people my age in the shadow of 9-11, and the Iraq war. And so 
the very aggressive militarized language of American exceptionalism um, still lingered on in the classroom when I was growing up. Um, I don't know if it has changed very much, but things like Freedom Fries and stuff like that, I kind of remember that sort of <laughs> sort of still being present um, even towards the end of the 2000s when I was in elementary school. And I also grew up in the shadow of multiple escalations of tensions on the Korean Peninsula, uh, most notably under the Trump administration in 2017. So that also really impacted me because I remember um, North Korea being on the news for like a week or so, and then it being like the topic of conversation with the country and then disappearing for like two years and then suddenly reappearing again, you know, um, and I think that really impacted me because I think, because I, I, I'm, I'm definitely not that well-versed in terms of the history of like DPRK U.S. tensions after the Korean War, but I do, I do think like the 2010s was like a really big, like there were multiple, multiple times that there, that there were pretty high stakes in terms of the possibility of war. And I think that was very something that also hung over my head growing up. Um, I think going back to the theme of digitalization and the internet, um, I think my generation may be the first or maybe the first and a half, I think, to like really grow up on the internet because something really interesting that I stumbled upon was my one of my teachers MySpaces. <laughs> um, a few months ago, I found one of my teachers MySpaces when she was in high school, and it really made me think about how the adults, like the like the adults that we wouldn't expect to have been entrenched in these digital spaces, are now like are actually are and like now people who are thirty, um, maybe even pushing forty, have been on these internet spaces for quite a long time, and. It just made me think about the geographic and chronological destabilizations that come with digital experiences and how that might have impacted the people who first were exposed to the internet, but also us, because we are like, I think in terms of my generation, we're like very in in the pits of like the digital condition or whatever, like being really invested and consumed by the feverish evanescence of like internet trends and like social media and stuff like that. So I think it's also a really big part of my background. Um, although I think I might have an outsider's view into the, the internet, I guess, because I didn't really have internet access until like late elementary school. So I actually also didn't have access to cable TV or TV at all when I was growing up. Like I only watched like public um, like television, like maybe once a week or like um, watch like cartoons on the Spanish language channel. But I didn't really get exposed to that until pretty far into growing up. So I think that my, my viewpoint might be unique for someone from my generation because I, um, haven't been totally socialized into the internet until later 
which might sound really crazy, but like um, it was at a time when most people had pretty much daily internet access or um, a phone and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the last main question I had for you was um, based off of the observation that your characters are queer in the novel. And um, that also makes your novel like interesting um, because for me, um, LGBTQ plus activism in South Korea isn't typically associated with Korean peace movements. How would you say that your characters in the novel speak to a politicized Korean diasporic queer identity? Yeah, um, I'll, I think I want to start with like my experience with my Korean American identity, like period, <laughs> because I think it's very interesting how I've sort of developed my identity as a Korean American. Um, half my life, I've lived in Philadelphia and the other in California. So I think something that many non-Korean Americans may know is how localized Korean American culture is from my experience. Like it's like, oh, like Georgia Koreans, Virginia Koreans, like there's like different, like like minor cultural differences, I think, between pe- Koreans from the East or the West Coast. And so I think having that experience of being embedded in Korean American communities, both in Pennsylvania and also in California is, uh, I think, contributed contributed at least to a more broader understanding of of the Korean diaspora in America and I think before I ever considered myself Korean American I was very conscious of of a strong immigrant identity because my mom worked at a center for immigrants immigrants in Pennsylvania which I think allowed for a personal Korean American identity formation that was deeply resistant to unwavering loyalty and assimilation into whiteness and the American project, um, which is deeply tied to legacies of empire in the diaspora. And I think having that politicized immigrant identity first, you know, of gave me the space to um, give me an alternative space to the dominant narratives of what Korean Americans are expected to be. Yeah. Well, when I was writing this book, I didn't intentionally try to make a statement about positing a specific politicized Korean American queer identity because I think I was just speaking on a personal level. But I think the dearth of literature in that area specifically makes it special. And yeah, and I think, and going back to like Korean, the Korean American community, um, Korean Americans show some of the highest levels of anti-queer attitudes among Asian Americans. And I think you can really tie that back to Korean right-wing politics and American Christian fundamentalism. Um, Like the Korean fundamentalist homophobic rhetoric um, is very tied to like Christian, like the Christian, like the American Christian imperialistic vision of the world. And I think this vision collides with and um, is subsumed into the US military's deployments into South Korea. And I think that, and within, and going back to like the South Korean LGBTQ movement, I, there's a strong dissident political subjectivity within it that I think we 
can learn from in terms of uh, how in South Korea the LGBTQ movement has not yet been subsumed into you know like rainbow capitalism or pinkwashing and um and when you really see how the right-wing protestant-led homophobia is mobilized in the name of south korean national security and the cold war geopolitical order so where where the same right-wing social forces are mobilized against both the peace and reunification movement and also lgbtq people i think making that link between anti-LGBTQ bigotry and militarization and anti-communism can give birth to a politicized Korean-American identity that interacts with issues across the Pacific and also Korean-American society. So I think in that way, you have a a convergence between being anti-imperialist and also um, anti-homophobia and anti-transphobia. And... I think that in an interesting, and I think that in terms of the peace movement in South Korea, there is a lot of interaction with the LGBTQ movement, maybe not so for the more older veterans of the movement, but definitely in terms of the younger people, like the progressive party right now has the strongest, um, has the strongest um, queer rights um, program in place for their presidential candidate for the upcoming election. So I think, and they also have a very strong uh, like program for peace and reunification. So I think that um, bringing these two together to make a politicized Korean American queer identity, as you said, would be especially powerful just because, um, you know, both anti-imperialists, both um, pro-reunification activists and LGBTQ people are cornered into the same um, sort of position by these right-wing Christian fundamentalist um, anti-communist forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we'll close the interview with you just reading a little from your novel. Um, so, so take it away. Okay. <laughs> the first language encoded in me was Korean. I appreciated it for its simple form, its brief expressions, its curt beauty, for expressing my mother's love. English was encoded later. It was with English that I learned to navigate the world. It was with English that my tongue squirmed around like a worm on a hot sidewalk. I spoke a third language, paralinguistics. I learned how to say without saying, to look into someone's eyes and scream at them without making a sound. I got quite good at it. It was the zero era all right, but we had at least gone beyond singularity. So the, world, so the world was at least a little bit more interesting. You'd think that more people would fear it or start destroying every phone they could find once they knew the machines were more powerful than them, but we embraced our new AI overlords. Most of us let it happen without noticing it at all. It was about as natural as water flowing down a creek. In grade two, the kids at my school started calling me a chink. I didn't know what it meant back then. I thought it was some kind of a robot thing. The next year, they started calling me a gook. Now I knew what they what that meant. I started having visions in my sleep. Each night, I would leave my body and fly across the Pacific Ocean, floating over rocky isles, shrimp boats, U.S. War, warships, and endless trails of trash. In no time, I would descend on the peninsula that jutted out from inner Asia like a sore thumb. I would live many different lives there. Every night, I traced the trajectory of a different person's life, short, long, marked by blood, rice, wine, or seawater. 
I lived with them out in full. It was better than meta metadata, that's for sure. I was the first shaman to I was the first shaman to traverse the peninsula's wild rivers and mountains. Through their eyes, I saw Grandmother Mago mold the world with her wrinkled hands. I made my home in the broadly forest and pulled at the strings of the universe. I built dolmens that would last millennia. I was a novice astronomer who witnessed the eruption of Mount Baekdu in 946. I was a Jurchen monk in Hamgyong province, speaking a strange dialect of Korean. I was a peasant speared to death by feudal lords in the Dongak Revolution. I was a collaborator with the local outpost of the Japanese colonial administration, who later became mayor of my village. I was a forced laborer taken across the Korean Strait, who disintegrated while facing the A-bomb in Hiroshima. I was a guerrilla of the Workers' Party of South Korea, who died of frostbite on Jirisan Mountain. I was the eldest son of a Jaebol family, one of the few privileged enough to be uploaded while the Korean Peninsula was carved up into pieces and laid to, wa laid to waste. Every time I would say, tigers don't eat wet rice, and I'd wake up. There was only one time where I lived multiple lives in the night. I was an experimental germ agent stored in a U.S. military weapons lab in Busan. I got to know the people in the apartments next door pretty well. I went from one body to the other, leaving death in my tracks. It's interesting how each person breathes in a different way, how oxygen goes in and carbon dioxide comes out. Anyway, it tripped me out. I started reading about Korea and writing about it. There was a little projector in the back of my head that would always be playing scenes from my overnight trips to the motherland. I started posting things about Korea on the feed too. And that was from Andy Choi's 2021 novel, Slow Hot, published by Schism Press. Thank you for listening.